you could take out your pew Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 12. You'll find that on page 890. I'm going to read the entirety of that chapter, but I'm also going to uh, back up just a little bit to chapter 11, verses uh, 36 through 45, leading into uh, chapter 12. And just by way of a broader uh, context as well, chapters 10 through 11, leading up to the very end of the book of Daniel, are one big vision given by what is described as a man clothed in linen above the waters. This is a, an angelic being sent to enlighten the mind of Daniel as to what is to take place down the road for God's people so that they may be comforted in the midst of, of much suffering and of much conflict. And the portion that I'll be reading in verses 36 through 45 of chapter 11 is going to recount a scenario that is yet to take place many years from Daniel of the tyrannical rule of the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes IV over the Jews in Jerusalem. And what this portion of, of Scripture is doing is really recapping and summarizing all of what we've seen in chapter 11, leading into chapter 12. And then chapter 12, our focus this morning, is going to reflect on all of this conflict and trial that God's people are going through in redemptive history. Question that might be on your mind now, though, is what on earth could this have to do with Easter and our Lord's being risen from the dead? Well, my prayer is that as we look at Daniel chapter 12, it will help us see that. But let's begin in Daniel chapter 11. I'll start in verse 36 and read to the end of the book. And the king, that is Antiochus, shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab in the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And to our text this morning. 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I'm also going to be reading in, in a responsive reading with you this morning, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45, which is going to point us in the direction of the resurrection. You'll, you should see that on the screens uh, as well. I'll read the question, and together we'll read the answer. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Well, congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if it were not for Easter Sunday and Jesus Christ being risen from the dead, then our gathering here this morning and my standing up here is a huge waste of time. Those who drive past this building on Sunday mornings see us gathered thinking to themselves, wow, what a bunch of pathetic losers. Guess what? They'd be right. Our worship is pointless. Our fellowship is bogus. Our strides in sanctification is a wasted effort in exercising spiritual strength. Why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we 
are of all people most to be pitied. But thanks be to God, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Scripture itself testifies to this very thing. Scripture testifies that it is indeed the word of God, and we can have full assurance that it is so, and that the resurrection is true, especially because of the newness of resurrection life in us, in union with Christ. All of this to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in history is absolutely pivotal for the Christian faith. It is at the center of it. Without it, there is no Christianity. It's non-negotiable. I love these words of a church historian when uh, depicting the early church and its zeal for the resurrection of Jesus and how important it was to their faith. He says, the living heart of their faith was not so much the death as the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus was executed, despair had engulfed his followers. They seemed to have a dead leader and a lost cause. It was Jesus' resurrection from the dead that transformed these broken and despairing people into the fiery apostles and martyrs of a new faith. A faith which within three centuries and despite vigorous persecution would conquer the whole Roman Empire. In the thought and preaching of the early church, the resurrection was seen as God's mighty vindication of all Jesus' claims. He really was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the source of God's gift of the Holy Spirit to all who obeyed him. It is always worth pausing and reminding ourselves of this. The entire history of the Christian church is rooted in, in one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus of Nazareth had not risen, there would be no church history. The rest of all of the church's story flows out of the resurrection of Jesus. Just one example of the historic church's fight to defend this important truth. We can think of the Gnostic movement in the middle of the second century, that is the 100s AD, where a sect of so-called Christians claimed to have a secret knowledge that only true Christians could have. Part of this knowledge stated that the physical universe was absolutely evil and was the enemy of the supreme God. They would say such things like the human body was, was part of this evil material world. Salvation meant escaping from the body and from the world of space and time in which the body holds us as prisoners. In other words, there was no place for a physical resurrection in the Gnostic worldview. Well, the response of the early church to Gnosticism was to place a very strong emphasis on apostolic teaching that passed down through the churches in which the apostles were active. And this apostolic teaching was compiled into what we call the rule of faith, a summary of their teaching. One of them, which is incredibly familiar to most of you, I imagine, we call it the Apostles' Creed. Contained within that creed, the church made sure that when recounting the life of Christ, that they included that he was crucified, died, and was buried, and then on the third day he rose 
again. Fast forward to the era of the Reformation, the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism that we read. As a very helpful tool in a question and answer style, it goes through the Apostles' Creed line by line, helping its readers better understand it. And in Lord's Day 17, question and answer 45, that question is asked, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And we read the answers for that together. The point is this, we share in a very rich tradition that goes all the way back, all the way back to the first century itself in proclaiming the truth of the resurrection and its implications for us here today, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We here in the 21st century, we look back in time, in history, to this very truth. We read Daniel chapter 12, an episode that takes place hundreds of years before Jesus became incarnate, lived, died, and rose again on the third day. And yet we read of resurrection. We read of being raised in our text this morning. Not of Christ's, but of the saints. And in the context of reading about their resurrection, we read of conflict, of trial, and of suffering. And yet there is this call still to a resurrection hope. We share in of redemptive history in types, prophetic shadows, whereas we see the fulfillment of it here today. Our union with Christ, if not for his resurrection, we would have no hope for our own. But there's no question, with trials of many sorts in this life, we think of sickness, we think of disease, we think of conflicts of all sorts, both personally and both corporately with others around us, it can be really hard in this day and age to keep the resurrection in proper perspective. And in the darkest days, we are exhorted to dwell on the resurrection and the hope that it provides. And Daniel 12 spells out this hope well for us this morning. We're going to see... Uh, two things. We're going to see the promise of the resurrection, and then what we're going to see is what encouragement to us looks like because of the resurrection. Well, if you join me in looking at verse 1, you already see a, a promise in some measure of deliverance. Michael the archangel is going to rise. He's going to defend Israel against the terrible suffering and outrageous desolation committed by Antiochus. This was truly a time of horrors for God's people to the point where Daniel writes such as, or the, the messenger says, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And in the backdrop of this horrible time in history, we read that the elect will be delivered. Those whose names are written in the book, that is the book of life. This book of life is hinted at throughout the Old Testament in Exodus and the Psalms, but it's most notable, perhaps, in the book of Revelation, where we read that the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and whose name will not be blotted out of the book of life, also known as the book of life of the Lamb. These are all of those who God in his eternal decree has ordained to be saved to everlasting life. They will be delivered. But this deliverance, this salvation, does not preclude actual physical suffering and death in this life. On the contrary, everyone dies, even God's elect. We know when our birthdays are coming up, but we don't know 
when the day is that we will die. That included those under this very evil and tyrannical rule of Antiochus. He put to death those whose names were written in the book of life. Deliverance came in some measure, however, with uh, the Maccabean revolt and all of the history that entails there and the reinstitution of the sacrifices. Antiochus, Antiochus was actually defeated. But there in the next couple of verses, we get a better picture of what ultimate deliverance looks like. It is a glorious promise of resurrection. And it's important to note this. Even if the saints were not spared by the sword, they will one day be delivered from death by bodily resurrection. We read that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. Remember the curse pronounced upon humanity after Adam and Eve's sin, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And now we have this promise here in our text of waking up from dust. Back in chapter 11, you'll read of those many who were refined and purified and made white in light of their persecution. And these are those who are ultimately vindicated and they're being resurrected from the dead someday. One commentator writes that God's good purpose would involve refining and raising his people. That is the ultimate everlasting deliverance. There are temporary deliverances here in this life, physically speaking, yes, but ultimate deliverance comes by way of resurrection when sin and death are finally eradicated. And this hope of deliverance is made in a very stark contrast to another group who will also be resurrected. We tend not to think of these categories in this way. Look at verse 2 once more. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This beauty of everlasting life is described later on, and when we read descriptions of such, we can only wonder what, what this resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt will be like for those outside of Christ. Did you know that on the last day there are two groups of people who will be resurrected? The just and the unjust? Jesus confirms this in John 5, 28 through 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not something we typically want to think about on Easter Sunday. Compared with those raised to life, those raised to judgment will be nothing more than walking corpses. My prayer this morning is that if you are in Christ and have put your faith in his saving work, despite current struggles and pitfalls before us, you can hope in the resurrection of life. Verse 2 tells us that this hope includes the glory of shining like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. Who are these people? The text described them as wise and as those who turn many to righteousness. See, God's people are not only those who remain faithful, but they are those who exhort others to stay true to the Lord, to hold fast to him in faith, love, and obedience. 
These are markers of God's people, and it is God's people who hope for a final resurrection to life someday. The brightness of stars depicts the glory that's in store for us, for our bodies of God's resurrected people. Jesus used the language of Daniel 12, verse 3, when he declared, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Congregation, it is this Jesus that is the focal point of all of this talk of resurrection. The promise of resurrection, the promise of shining like the sky above, was inaugurated by Jesus and will be fulfilled at his return. 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That term first fruits, it refers to that first sample of a crop that indicates the nature and the quality of all of the other portions of the crop that will come after it. In other words, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. As the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he guarantees that they'll wake up, language referring to bodily resurrection, from the dust of the earth. All of those who have gone before us, including the Old Testament saints, such as those that we read of in our text this morning, saints who have perished in the church age, our loved ones who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will be raised because Christ was their first fruit. And we will someday share in Christ's vindication. For as Paul writes, In Philippians, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is no doubt that you desire to experience that bodily resurrection someday. That is your hope, and it is good. But congregation, if you are in Christ, you shine like stars even now because you've been raised spiritually to newness of life. As a child of God, it is written of you that you shine as lights in the world amid a crooked and twisted generation. That comes from Philippians. If you've experienced a changed life because of Christ, you have already tasted resurrection. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. On Easter Sunday, Christ rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And because of his resurrection, we can have hope for our own because he is the first fruits of it. How does this encourage us then? The remainder of our text is going to show us. But verse 4 doesn't necessarily strike a chord of encouragement necessarily straight out of the gate. Look at what the messenger says to Daniel. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. But if we were to ponder this more carefully, we can definitely see the, the hand of God most assuredly at work here. Daniel is told to seal the book until the time of the end, until this time of suffering for God's people is over. In the interim, in the meantime, God's people are going to be running to and fro, prophetic language that indicates that God's people are going to be looking for a word from the Lord, but they will not 
find it. In a forthcoming season of terrible persecution, though, God knows that his very people are most definitely going to need a word of encouragement in their times of suffering. So, in essence, God's word here is being preserved for his people so that down the road they may understand and reflect upon his promises to them. If so, for them, how much more for us as those who live in the new covenant era? Old covenant saints, they had the Torah, they had the Psalms, they had the prophets. We have the fully disclosed word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, now, he has spoken to us by his Son. The mysteries of salvation, of resurrection, have been disclosed to us in Christ. And there we find comfort in his resurrection in times of trial. Verses 5 through 6. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. Someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? That's a question that most certainly burns in our minds as well. How long, O Lord, we long to experience that resurrection now. Lord willing, the words Maranatha occasionally show up on our lips. It means, come, Lord Jesus. How long? And in response, this figure, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever. This oath of this angelic being is going to prove and affirm that what he is about to say is very trustworthy, so we should take this very seriously. He says, it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. In the book of Daniel, we've seen this language of time, times, and half a time before. That might sound familiar to you just by way of reminder. What that means simply is three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time probably corresponds very well with the period of turmoil and conflict from 167 to 164 BC under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And you could definitely say that during those years, the holy people of God most certainly went through a shattering. They were broken. Their power was gone. And the power of the horrifying king of history took over. But we read there that there is an end. God promised an end. He promised a terminus to all of these things. It's going to be on the calendar. An end to the season of trial and conflict. A time when this tyrannical king opposed and massacred hundreds of Jews, desecrated the temple with the sacrifice of a pig, and prohibited obedience to the law of Moses. All of this is even metaphorical language for the time of tribulation for the church here on earth, even today, as we ourselves anticipate the return of Jesus and of resurrection. And, but this also signifies that evil, ultimately speaking, has a terminus. It has a day set on God's calendar when it will be dealt with. 
And yet in this foreseen conflict for generations after Daniel, chaos just continues to swirl around in his mind. And he is right to ask this question, what's going to be the outcome of these things? And look what the messenger says to him, go your way. <laughs> go your way. The words, they're, they're bound, they're sealed until the time of the end. No more revelation from God. Go your way, move on. But in this gracious uh, nature and character of this messenger, he does drop some hints and clues as to what the outcome of the suffering of God's people will be like. He says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. In these trying times, there is the contrast of the wise and the wicked. One person wrote, The wicked do not walk wisely or in obedience to God's law. The wise, on the other hand, walk in the fear of Yahweh. They have understanding because of their knowledge of and obedience to God's word. They trust his providence and believe his promises. They believe that God is going to work his glory through suffering on the way to resurrection beauty and shining like the stars in the heavens. Ask yourself this question this morning. Having been raised, if you have put your faith in Jesus this morning, having been raised to newness of life already because of Christ's death and resurrection, we experience sanctification and purification through suffering and trials as well, don't we? God's grace, it even allows for a determined time frame, time times and half a time, and this real odd, precise number of 1,290 days. It's just a little over three and a half years. And a special blessing for the one who makes it to 1,335 days. I'm not going to go into the weeds here on how theologians have thought about all of these numbers. Save that for a Sunday school lesson. But suffice it to say that these very particular numbers emphasize a predetermined set of time ordained by God where his people will go through suffering and trial, they will go through intense suffering and trial, but they will be purified and refined, and it is going to come to an end. His promises are sure. Even with the extension of the days with this other number that's given to us, it highlights the, 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 the vast mystery even of God's timing and how he works in history. And it emphasizes the need for, for the saints to persevere faithfully, even when to us, even when to our human wisdom, God's arrival seems way overdue. And in this season of perseverance, Daniel is called to live out his days in faithfulness till the end. And what is he told? And you shall rest, you will fall asleep, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel probably died in Babylon. We don't have any records of him returning uh, to Jerusalem. But that does not exclude Daniel 
from participating in the glorious things that God was still going to do for his people. Daniel was told he would rest. He would die. He would sleep, so to speak, in the dust of the earth, returning there because of the curse. However, there is good news. His feet will stand again someday on solid ground. He shall stand in his allotted place at the end of the days. If Daniel was asleep in death, his standing awake is a promise of resurrection. In the book of Daniel, therein we find this good news of resurrection hope applied. He would share in resurrection life. He would shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. We read this language of Daniel standing in his allotted place that comes from the language in the book of Joshua where the tribes of Israel were given their allotted place in the promised land. And so Daniel was included among those who would inherit all that God promised his people. And that ultimately comes in the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells with his people forever. There's a hope of resurrection, but it's because of Christ's resurrection. What do we take from all of this? Chiefly that God is a God of promises and he is faithful to execute them. As the book of Daniel shows over and over again, his purposes never fail. Through his ordaining providence over the rise and the fall of many kingdoms, through his preservation of the saints through fire and jaws of lions, through the work of the promised anointed one who will usher in the final jubilee of peace and freedom for his people, he has proven faithful. He has proven faithful. He is a God who keeps his promises. How do we know? Because he is not here, for he has risen as he said. Christ has brought resurrection in the inauguration of the kingdom. He is a rock cut not by human hands that destroys the kingdoms of this world. As the risen one, he triumphs over all evil principalities and forces of darkness. Indeed, he has conquered sin and death itself. And so may we go about our days in the comfort of these wondrous truths and the surety of his faithfulness. The Lord may call us home should he tarry in his return, but in the meantime we are called to remain faithful, to have faithful lives persevering through trial, whatever form that may take for us, reflecting on the hope that the resurrection provides. Because he lives, you can face tomorrow, and he'll look after you. Your days are numbered, you will pass on, and you will rest when your days are done. But know that you, like Daniel, who lie in the dust, will awake someday and shall shine like the stars in the heavens, all because Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. One day, Lord willing, you will stand in resurrection, alongside the resurrected Messiah, 
Jesus Christ, the faithful one. This is sure. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you spoke to your people so long ago. Even to us in our human wisdom, it may seem like strange words. Help us to ponder these truths carefully. May we hold them fast to our hearts, to our minds. But Lord, applied by your spirit in us. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that his resurrection has for us in our own resurrection someday. But Lord, we know and understand that your word speaks to a newness of life that is already ours in Christ. We have already been resurrected, so to speak, spiritually, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for the enlightening illumination of the Spirit to guide us in all truth that we may um, take comfort in these things, no matter what we're going through, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.